All right. So we're going to deal with one of the more difficult issues in, in Scripture, and that is Pharaoh's hard heart. It is mentioned well back in chapter 4, where, where God even says back at that point in time that he would harden Pharaoh's heart. But even before all of these events unfold, God says to Moses ahead of time, here's how it's going to go down. You're going to bring a message to Pharaoh and he's not going to listen to you. And I am going to strengthen or harden his heart. In other words, I'm going to give him greater resolve. And the word to harden is also the word to strengthen, to, to fortify one's heart so that you can actually stand your ground. And, and unfortunately, in this case, he's standing his ground on stubborn pride and digging in his heels against God Almighty. In matter of fact, the, the entry point of hearing about God, Pharaoh says in his great arrogance, who is this God? God, who, 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 who even knows of such a God? Uh, even though this, this is the people that have been living in the land of Goshen, uh, this is the God who has been accredited with saving all of, of Egypt from the plague, saving them from the dream in which the skinny cows come and eat the thick cows or the skinny grains of, of wheat uh, or corn eat the, the, the thick grains of wheat or corn and all of it is as if there was no abundance at all and Egypt, like the rest of the world, would have plunged into a horrid famine that would have devastated the nation. And even though it was that God who set up Egypt for the great deliverance that was theirs, nonetheless, here is this Pharaoh who gives no regard whatsoever to this God. And, and as we, we read, we'll start in verse 6. Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is God speaking to Moses, 6.6. Uh, 6, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. And, and this is where we ended last week. And what a high note to be able to see God revealed, to see God's desire, a God who heard the groaning of his people under the bondage of slavery. Verse 9, Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. So Pharaoh's plan is working. Clever, but horrid all at the same time. Then the Lord said to Moses, go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. And so here begins the proclamation of liberation. But Moses said to the Lord, if the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips. And we've watched this call of, of uh, Moses again and again. And every single time that God brings reinforcement as much as he could possibly bring reinforcement. Look at that beautiful listing of phrases. I will free you. You will be my people. I will be your God. You will know me. I will bless you. I will bring you into the land. I am the Lord your God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it will be done. And the response from Moses is, uh, I'm not sure I'm up for this. 
after again and again. Last time we were here on Tuesday night, and again, the, the great affirmation of God, I'm going to use you, Moses. And, and that's when Moses said, in the title of our lesson last week, here I am, send someone else. <laughs> but look at the mercy of God and his, his determination to deliver his people that he's able to overlook this offense again and again. But why, why, why is Moses getting a special pass here? Why is it that other people seem to not do so great, but they don't get a special pass? Because I believe this is a, an important aspect. Moses is not bringing his doubts or his fears or his grumbling of God to someone else. He's bringing it to God. Read the Psalms. Read Psalm 31, 37, 73, 13. Again and again, as you read these Psalms, God actually appreciates it when we wrestle with Him. God forbid we ever get to a place where we stop wrestling with Him. God forbid we ever get to a place where we stop feeling called. Where we stop feeling the, the great magnitude of the life of absolute significance that he wants you to have. And to write that off. Because probably the moment that we write that off is the moment where we stop coming before the Lord saying, God, how is it that you're going to use me, me of all people, for the greatness of this task to be able to bring Jesus, to connect, to be a mediator, to be that facilitator. Lord, how is it that you could use me? If we're not even saying that anymore, this should be a wake-up call for every one of us. We have written off the precious significance that your life was always reborn to be. And, and so it is. Nothing less than that. And to embrace the mundane and the ordinary is to really reject what it is that God has done to disrupt and arrange your life for you to be able to be his special vessel to make a great difference. Moving on from there, we then have the record of Moses and Aaron. This is their genealogy, which is an honoring to them. I'll um, hope that you can enjoy reading that. And then in verse 26, it says, It was this Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. God is like doing it. It's like it's really happening. God is like, okay, th this is not theory anymore. Let's go. You are getting liberated. They were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. This same Moses and Aaron. Now, when the Lord spoke to Moses in Egypt, he said to him, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, everything I tell you. But, here we go again. But Moses said to the Lord, Since I speak with faltering lips, why would Pharaoh listen to me? I'm losing count at this point of the number of times that Moses receives a, a magnificent, intimate, direct commission from Lord God Almighty... And he receives it with, uh, I'd rather not. You know, thanks, but no thanks. Taxi. And yet, here is God persevering, wanting Moses to still, at the end of the day, 
to be the one to raise his staff, to part the Red Sea, to affect the deliverance of two million slaves, and then to watch the vanquishing of the greatest superpower on earth. To think that he still has this honor after this ignominious start that we've got right here. Verse 1 of chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, like, at this point, I think he's going to say to him, all right, how many times do I have to hear this? But there's no more like, you know what? I need a new plan. But he's still gracious, gracious to Moses because Moses is wrestling with God, not just kind of hardening his own heart through his own grumbling. Then the Lord said to Moses, see, I've made you like God to Pharaoh. What does he do instead? He commends Moses. He reminds him of who he is. He reminds him of his special place with God. He, of course, is not God. God just says, I'm going to make you like God to Moses. And like God, you're going to have a mouthpiece. You're going to have a prophet who's going to speak for you. And your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you and your brother Aaron to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But, and here's the, the point I want to talk about tonight. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. And Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Before anything happens, before any plague descends, before any word is brought before Pharaoh, what is it that God says that he's going to do to Pharaoh? Harden his heart. Now, a lot of us like to do these backflip uh, gymnastics to try and present God as a good God who would never get in there and you know, directly affect someone's free will. Uh, even a Pharaoh. Even such a kind of an evil dictator over a, a country that has oppressed his people. And, and, and even in this case, I think we need to be okay with a God that would directly harden Pharaoh's heart. But I don't know if that's exactly what does happen. Of the 22 times that the phrase hardened heart refers to Pharaoh, 22 times it will occur in our Exodus text. 11 of those times... And all of the beginnings all say this. I will, from God's point of view, I will, says the Lord, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. It doesn't leave you a lot of room of saying, well, what really happens is, uh, you know, God kind of just, you know, allows events to unfold. And those events, you know, that, that's the way. No, it is laying out for us very directly. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And we bristle at that. And there's something in us that doesn't like that idea very much. I'm preparing you because we're actually going to have interaction. And you can raise a hand because if you all shout, it won't be the greatest interaction. Why is it that you think either for you or, or, or for people that seem to bristle at this idea that this is not a popular idea 
that God has hardened Pharaoh's heart. Great. So obviously the hardening of his heart causes sin. We'd, we'd like to think that God would do nothing. A good God would do nothing that would in any way br- bring about some of the, the, the uh, sinfulness that, that we see in Pharaoh. I, I think that's at the, at the heart of the matter. Let's see if Federico has something else he'd like to say there. Aha! I know he's such a nice guy, and like the poor guy never had a shot at it. And why should he be damned if he never really had a chance to make a decision? Right? Isn't that the other big one? Yes. I think those are the two big ones. You guys nailed it already. Thank you for this moment of interaction. There might be another one coming up. And just No, you did. Right? I mean, right off the bat, boom, boom. Those are the two big arguments that, that always really surround this passage. Is how, how could this be if, if God does this? And, and, and so the question that we have here is, is with this hard heart, is how did God harden his heart? And, you know, we've, we, we've kind of looked at in the past, we've spoken, and I think it's a good analogy. We talked about it at the men's breakfast the other morning, that the same stimulus, let's say the sun, can soften clay, I mean, can soften butter, but harden a heart. And, and that may be the case. But, but I don't know if this is the, the, the same stimulus necessarily. I think this is an orchestration of things that need to bring about a hardened heart. And maybe the same orchestration of things might not soften your heart either, by the way. If you had unbridled power, if you had unchecked authority, if you could do whatever you wanted and you knew that you would not get in trouble for it whatsoever. When you see that Tesla looking fine, and you know that you could just go ahead and take that Tesla and nobody could ever say anything to you about it, there might be something in your heart that starts to grind away at thinking, maybe I should take that Tesla. And, and there will be no kind of blowback whatsoever because I'm the king of Egypt. And everybody's just going to say, yes, sir. Here, go ahead. Take it. Take it. Right? I mean, imagine if, if that were really the case. I know, of course, you're all saying, not me, not me, not me. But there might be something where, where you know that there would be no consequence whatsoever other than perhaps just more affirmation coming your way. Of who knows what would happen. But the, the big question, and here are the two technical words. They don't sound technical because they're, they're, they're words that we use a lot. Let's see if this works. Is, does God harden directly or indirectly? And then the words that theologians have used over the years, and I mentioned this on Sunday, but I'll, I'll go a little deeper here today. You guys are easily amused. <laughs> this is the big question. Immediately or immediately? And immediately is a word that means through mediation. Uh, That is, there is some sort of an intermediary, an intervening stimulus that helps to bring about a, a hardened heart. So, for example, if you wanted to harden my heart on a Sunday morning, all you would have to do is just encourage my son maybe to be even five more minutes late for church. And that might, that might do a pretty good trick on me giving like, oh, I, I think I got to go pray for 15 minutes, even though they'll put me 10 minutes late for church. And what if Paul's standing at the door? Oh my goodness, what's going to happen? 
right? And all that, all of the, like all those factors come together, and they might be immediate actions that harden my heart and overflow with frustration, bile of of, of frustration and harshness spilling out all over my son, right? And that's all perhaps that it would take to immediately or through mediation through my, my, my precious son dragging his feet uh, to, to be able to harden my heart in, in that situation. God doesn't have to go in and flip the switch of my free will. That would be immediately. He just has to put a slow son in my path. And, and he can affect that change in my heart rather readily. And by the way, God's thoughts for me and for you, according to Psalm 139, outnumber the grains of sand of the seashore, which geologists estimate to be 100 billion times 100 billion. A God who considers you that dearly and deeply probably knows just how long your son has to slow down before church on Sunday morning for your heart to get hard. And, and I think it would be very easy for God to have just the right combination of stimuli, combination of life events, that could really bring my heart to that crusty place that was there. I don't know how many people would hearts would soften at that moment, by the way. Maybe, maybe yours would and say, oh my goodness, you know, poor boy. I mean, he's, he's not responding to his alarm. Maybe his ears are stuffed. Oh, I feel, I feel bad. Maybe you have a good heart like that. Maybe it would soften your heart the, the later that he gets and, and really wondering what's going on. But as for me, it would harden my heart. Uh, now, but, but, but this, is, this is something that's, that's pretty important because th this has been a debate throughout all the centuries around the very character of God. But does God actually mess with our free will? We have a God who has absolute sovereignty, a God who has perfect foreknowledge. And so how do you, in some way, harmonize perfect foreknowledge with my free will? Do I just think that I'm living out my free will? But he's actually already kind of you know, determined all my steps and flipped all my switches ahead of time. The, these are the, the, the great difficulties that the people have always, always wrestled with as they try to consider God. And in, in some cases, you have people that try to you know, kind of swing the pendulum over towards how dare you ever think that God is not in control of any and everything, including your very actions. Those would be the people that would really argue and defend the sovereignty of God. Over on the other side, you'd have people say, how dare you then call God the author of evil? Because I'm sinning all through the decades of my life. And if he's in control of every single one of my actions, and, and he's got my free will on a tether, you know, as a, as a puppeteer, well, then what are you saying about God? How dare you say that God is anything but good? And, and so the conflict goes back and forth. I, I think one of, one of the ways that, that, that we can kind of really see through all of this is that God can harden a heart, not by going in and changing your free will, not by doing it immediately, that, that is without mediation, but that God can do it quite easily through mediation. We actually have it even happening the other way. Can you think of someone... Hint, hint, it's a woman in the New Testament who it seems as though God goes in and softens her heart so that she would believe. Who's that? Oh, look at the young lady up front. Oh, very good. 
Excellent answer. What, what does it say about, about Lydia and, and her path to God? Yeah, God opened her heart so that she would what? So she would believe, that she, she, she would accept, accept the message. Yeah. Uh, and so now you have it on the other side. By the way, those are the two big ones, the two main ones that, yeah, that you see. Uh, Pharaoh on the one side, and then of course Lydia on the other. And then of course we can argue about Judas and some others too. But on, when we look at, at examples like Pharaoh or like Lydia being the first convert to establish Christianity in all of Europe, I think we've got to be okay even with this. If God did, in fact, immediately use Pharaoh so that his glory could be revealed, we need to be okay with that. And that we need to just let God be God. And to recognize that those are the unusual circumstances. And that the Holy Spirit comes to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Convict is not flip the switch of our free will. John 16, 8, by the way, is the reference there. But con convict, elenko, the, the word in the, in the text that Jesus uses, uh, is the idea to be able to present a case before us so that we would de be deeply convicted about our sin, about our righteousness, about our judgment, so that our hearts would soften and our hearts would receive the, the, the greatness of the covenant that God offers to, to us. So as, as, as we now consider what God is doing through Moses and through Pharaoh, we need to make sure that we're getting a better and better view of God and to know that God is doing this. Why? For you, for his people. And if God chooses to make out of a lump of clay an object for destruction, such as Pharaoh, well, that's his prerogative. Uh, and if he decides to do it directly, that's his prerogative. But if he does it indirectly, well then, that's the way that he did it. If he did it immediately, through giving him great power, through giving him deadlines, through giving him slave labor, through taking away that slave labor, if that's all that it took to harden his heart, as, as well as the destruction upon his, his property and, and kingdom, uh, well, then, then that's how God did it. But, but either way, we need to just simply glory at a God who hears the call of his people and swings into action. And in a sense, what he does is he, he strengthens the resolve of Pharaoh. It's almost like you now have at this point for the next five, seven chapters that, that, that are before us, we have now a heavyweight boxing match between Pharaoh, who considers himself a god or a demigod of Horus, uh, but we have, we have Pharaoh in one corner and we have Yahweh, God the creator, in the other. And Pharaoh is willing to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with God. And God is going to bring haymaker after haymaker up against Pharaoh and any normal boxer would throw in the towel. But instead of his corner being people that are saying, throw in the towel, throw in the towel... Instead, he has, through, through the, the greater resolve that, that God has given him, he has resolved that I'm going to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with this God every single round. And there'll be a couple rounds in, the, in between rounds where I'm going to say, you know what, I've sinned, maybe we should let these people go. And then by the time he gets a drink of water and he feels a little better, he's like, now, you know what, I'm going to go another round with this God. 
And that will be all the next chapters, is that, that he is an arrogant fighter, fighting against God, not knowing when to quit. And God says, all right, if that's what he wants to do, you know what? I'm not afraid to give him a little extra fortitude here. I'm not afraid to arrange the, the events of his life or even directly arrange his fortitude so that my people will know how deep their deliverance is. And they will never doubt for a second who their God is and what he can do for them. And so he strengthens the resolve of Pharaoh and, and we see the, the end result. That God doesn't want a half measure at the end for his people. He wants to bring about the complete destruction of Pharaoh's arrogance so that his people will never live in fear of that superpower again, but to live with the confidence that we serve a mighty God. And thus he wants that for you as well, to know that you serve a mighty God. But as Jesus commissions you, he tells us in John 15 and 16, hey, if the world hated me, guess what they're going to do for you? They're going to hate you too. And only a few are going to respond to your, your offer of, of the greatness of the grace of God. This is the way that it's going to go down. It's as though Moses shouldn't be surprised about the resistance that he's getting when he confronts evil. And we shouldn't be surprised either. It will be a rough road, but we need to, to be good at persevering in it. But also to recognize that you have a God that wants to affect people's hearts. He wants to affect the deliverance for all people. He used Egypt to preserve the blessing given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Kept it clean and pure and free from corrosion and corruption of the Canaanites so that it would be released 400 years later, able to be a blessing to all nations, to be able to bring about Jesus himself, who would then be able to activate through his grace, his death, his blood, and his spirit, a people through all nations. Gentiles too, that means you. And, and now, how are we to understand this? You know, when we look at this, God is the hero of what we read. God is the hero of every single story. Do you want Moses to be the hero? What has he done so far? Hamana, hamana, hamana. What do you think, God? Right? I mean, that's no heroic figure on purpose for us because God is meant to be the hero. We're the oppressed people. But on the other hand, when we see God use Moses to be able to affect the deliverance of his people, know also that we who are the least in the kingdom, we who are reborn of the Holy Spirit, are called to have even greater significance than Moses. And Moses in Hebrews eleven thirty 30 on, looks to us to say, wow, what it is that they'll be able to do. So as we read Exodus and make our way through it throughout this month, marvel at a God who hears you. A God who has gone to the greatest of all lengths, sending his very son to be butchered for your great glory, deliverance, honor, and blessing. He would do all of that. And, and also to recognize that while you are the recipient of the hero, you're also to play a role. It's not a passive one. You're to play a role where you extend to the usefulness to God even beyond Moses. And so 
let's just finish off tonight with this consideration. How can God use you as a mediation, as, as one that would be used by God to affect the hearts of the people that God wants to affect?